0: Well, let's return to the book of Job, to Job chapter 28. And as you turn there to Job chapter 28, yes, the title is Seeking Wisdom. But what is so interesting about Job 28 is that it is one of, if not the most unusual chapters in all of Job. And I know I'm saying that um, um, as as we're talking about a book that is by itself so very unusual. Right. I mean, so many things have happened in the life of Job um, and uh, whether it's the the personal tragedies, the loss of property, um, the loss of health and vitality and his expression that he thinks that he is he is at the very threshold of death and he kind of welcomes it. I mean, this is how bad it's gotten for Job, and in the discussion amongst his friends about why all this is happening, you have chapter twenty-eight that's all about the issue of wisdom. In fact, so much, um, so unusual is this particular chapter, its theme and its 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 kind of flavor, that again scholars have thought, okay, this this can't be Job. This might be someone else that adds this in at some point. This seems oddly placed. You know, right after all of the discussions are done, Job and his friends and their dialogue about why Job is suffering. It seems like an odd place, but it may seem odd in terms of uh, the, the sound or the, the thematic structure, the vocabulary, but as we study this chapter, I think you'll find that it's placed exactly where God had inspired it to be placed. And the reason why I'm saying that is, yes, the discussions between friends and Job have gone on. Friends saying, Job, you know, there's a reason why we suffer. And that reason is because God is just. So if you would confess, maybe there's hope for you. Maybe you could repent. The problem is Job, in his absolute sincerity, can say, I haven't done anything that deserves this. You're mistaken. And they're saying, no, you're mistaken. And he's saying, no, you're mistaken, right? And it turns into almost this playground argument where it's just kind of high language and theological truth kind of thrown at each other. And in the end, the thing that Job keeps saying is, why? You see, Job is dying. It's established that. His children are already dead. Let's remember that. All of his possessions, his place in society, all gone. He is in this rubbish heap outside the the populous city, and he is sitting there and he's just waiting for his final moment to come. This is all he is. And in that moment, this is a question I want you to ask yourself what does Job really want? What does he want? Does he want his health to be revitalized? Some doctors to come on the scene and go, Job, you got something, something, right? Like here, eat this, do this, do a few push-ups, you'll be fine. Is that what he's after? Does he want a restoration of his possessions and his influence? Does he want his friends to go, Job, man, you were right all along. You are the best. And look, God has restored your fortunes and, you know, you're rich again. Is that what he wants? Does he want his children back? Does he want to rewind on everything that has happened? I don't think that's what we found in Job as he's asking the question, why? Job, in his faith, has an intuition not to seek God in some way to say, God, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve it. Rewind the clock. No, what he's asking is, Lord... You have done this. I know that. But I don't understand the why. What he wants more than anything is understanding or wisdom. Remember throughout this entire um, um, series in Job, we said one of the things that we should keep in our minds constantly to help us to walk through this uh, carefully and thoughtfully and wisely is that of all those individuals that are involved, no one knows how Job will end except God. His understanding is absolute. His knowledge is absolute. His wisdom, and that's our term today, His wisdom is both unfathomable, I kind of said that weird because I'm not sure how to pronounce that right, is, is unsearchable, un, unminable absolutely essential to understanding that God has never lost control, and that for all that Job is going through, God has never abandoned his friend. It's his wisdom, and Job intuitively is asking why. Oh man, if God would just show up, Where can God be found so that we could just have a talk? You know, I could just explain that this is happening. Lord, and I know you, you know this because you're the one that sent this my way, but I'm just wondering what is this about? See, he's trying to understand his reality, a reality where God loves him. He knows that. Where God is absolutely powerful, he knows that. And in his love and his power, he could have prevented this, all of this from happening. But no, God in his power has ordained this. God in his sovereignty has brought this to Job's doorsteps. But God still loves him, doesn't he? How does this universe work? What is the secret sauce? What is happening? That's the question of wisdom. And of all the things this passage, this this chapter does, it's a beautiful ode to seeking wisdom. It's a poem dedicated to the value, the unattainableness, and the absolute necessity of seeking wisdom. And that, that, that's our passage today. Um, wait, did it's wrong? Three movements. One, wisdom cannot be mined. Other things can be mined. Other treasures can be mined. Wisdom cannot be mined. That's verses 1 through 11. Secondly, wisdom cannot be possessed. You can't buy it. You can't, you, can't, you can't get it at the market. You can't exchange anything. It's incomparable. And it cannot be fully possessed by human beings. And then third, and which is kind of the most significant part, is wisdom is only with God. And that's verses 33, 23 through 28. But let, us, um, uh, let me read this, this chapter to you, and then let's take a look at it. Um, Together and be enriched by what Scripture has to say about wisdom. Job 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore, in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air. Far away from mankind, they swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned. Underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains. By the roots, he cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not; it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot weigh as its price. cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or, or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way of it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gives to the wind its weight and apportion the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to mine out the riches of this particular chapter. Father, keep us uh, in the mindfulness of the terror and the struggle, the pain and the suffering of Job. And in it to see this glimmering hope. And that ultimately, that wisdom, understanding the answers to why things are ultimately end in your lap. Or we recognize that you have built this universe and that all the things that are here in all of redemptive history, everything, its ups and its downs, you have in perfect order. It is accomplishing your perfect wisdom. But that wisdom is unattainable to us. Help us to understand some wisdom so that we might live a life that is rightly structured, that is correctly balanced, that looks to our God regardless of our circumstances. We ask that you would open our eyes to see good things from your word that we might be transformed and changed by it now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, even as I read it to you, hopefully, thinking about that outline and having read that, there's already something of, of, of a curiosity a spark of interest and something that is uh that is developing in your mindset as we think about this idea of mining for wisdom, right? And the first point in verses one through eleven is exactly mining and how wisdom cannot be mined. Now I know wisdom is not mentioned here in verses one through eleven. In fact, wisdom is mentioned specifically in a couple questions of where can wisdom be found in verses twelve and verse twenty. But because the way that verse 12 and verse 20 happen and structure out, I think, the, the depth of all of this, the point is this. Now, I'm assuming this is Job, and as Job writes this wonderful chapter, right, this, this poem, this ode to wisdom, he begins by talking about mining, by actually digging mines and extracting stuff from the earth. And I, I think there's a reason why he goes to that of all illustrations thematically it is because one the pursuit of mining and seeking treasures deep in the earth right that is a pursuit of great treasure value in other words there's tremendous value or worth to the things that are extracted out secondly mining is a good illustration because it's difficult even the things that that he talks about Right? As Job describes the, the task that man has been able to accomplish for the sake of mining out jewels and gold and silver, that's a difficult task. It remains a difficult task. Right? We have amazing technology today, but it's still the same thing. You dig a hole deep into the ground, make sure that it, you try to make sure that it doesn't collapse on you, and you're digging out carefully all the stuff that is valuable in the earth. So, value and difficulty. I think those are the two main reasons why mining works. There's something of value that you have to get, but it is almost unreachable. It's difficult, but man has been able to accomplish it. That's his point. Can I say something about mines? I was looking up mines to see, like, okay, do I, is there something I could... The three deepest mines in the world are all in South Africa. I have no idea what that's about. Why 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 is it on South? Africa? But they are. The the I'm not gonna pronounce this right. Mbong Neng gold mine, two and a half miles deep. The Tautona mine, two point four miles deep. The Savuka gold mine, two point three miles deep. All of them in South Africa. To give you an idea, so just pulled up, you know, Google Maps. How far is like two and a half miles? It's the approximate distance. If you guys are coming from West LA, right, and you guys come in north on the 45 to get off at Nordoff to come to this church, two exits earlier is Sherman Way. Sherman Way to Nordoff is about 2.4 miles. That's about the distance of these three mines down into the earth. Or if you guys come like we do from the 118, Right, and you get off the freeway. If you go walk out to Sepulveda and then you try to walk all the way to the 118, that is not even close to the distance. That's only 1.6 miles. You got almost another mile to walk. That is really deep into the ground and dangerous and dark because see i think one of the things that people ask is why would job choose this and i said thematically it fits because there is treasure to be had and it takes enormous amount of work and danger to get to it that's why wisdom fits this analogy but there's another reason it's dark and dangerous is and it what who cares if it's dark and dangerous I think it it fits Job's understanding of how difficult it is to get to the answer or to get to the question, to get the answer to the question, why do these things happen? If he wants wisdom, he's saying it is analogous to doing something that is so dark and deep and dangerous that it fits his current situation. And I think that's why he chooses that. There's this movie, I think it's back in like the, the 90s, um, called Little Man Tate. He has no, I see no eyes reflecting any glint of, of understanding. So, But in this movie, it's about like prodigy genius kids, these little ones. And some of them are math wizards. You know, you throw out like 10 different crazy long numbers and you multiply, divide them and stuff. And instantaneously they could give you the answer, right? Little Man Tate is this genius of a kid. And he can do that. He can do the math stuff. But his genius lies in kind of, his depth of understanding, generally, more deeply. And so his genius, like, I don't know, principal school teacher lady that runs this school of geniuses, I'm using the word genius a lot. I don't know how else to describe these freaks, right? There's crazy, right, smart people. And so she is, like, looking at, he's, like, looking at Van Gogh's irises. You guys familiar with that? If you're not, get yourself some culture. Look that up on Google, right? But it's all these blue irises, and then there's this one white one and as tate is staring at that she walks into the room and she goes hey that's one of my favorites she says um i wonder why he painted just one white iris and i always remember this because i thought it was so clever right tate is looking at it and he's this little dude he's like you know like eight years old or something and he turns around and as he walks away he says because he's lonely and he just walks away and there's something about that that strikes a chord in me like dude that is brilliant I bet that is why that that he did that. I don't I don't know if that's actually the reason why, but but I, if it is, that's brilliant, right? But this is Job. Of all the ways that he could describe how difficult the search for knowledge, for understanding, for for wisdom is, it is desolate, dangerous, and lonely. That that's why he chooses the mining, right? That's I mean, he just doesn't talk about some rare bird that he's trying to hunt or something, right? That weird butterfly that nobody has seen. The rare unicorn in the Alps, right? He, he could talk about mythological creatures, etc. But here, it's just about mining deep for something valuable. And it's deep, dark, dangerous, and lonely. All right, I said too much about that. Let's get to this part. In verse 1 and 2, he simply says... That all of treasure has a place. In other words, it can be found. It, it, using the illustration of mining for wealth, he says, in verse 1 surely there's a mine for silver. You, there's a place that you go and you can find silver now, right? And a place for gold where they refine it. He's saying, gold and silver, there's places you go, that's where it's dug up, that's where it's refined. Like, there's mines for that. Verse 2, he says, Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. So he's using like, like precious metals, like silver and gold. There's a place where you can find that stuff in the earth. And, and, and useful metals like iron and copper, there's again a place that you can dig out, mine, and smelt that sort of stuff. That's his point. Treasure has a place. It can be found, right? And man finds a way to get at it. Verses 3 through 6. Look at verses 3 and 4. Man puts an end to darkness. See the darkness? And I think this is the emotional thematic um, connection. Right? He puts an end to darkness and searches out the furthest limit. The ore in gloom and deep darkness job has been saying that he is in gloom and deep darkness and here it's like you could dig down and you can actually pull out silver and gold from deep dark two and a half mile deep pits you can do that it's amazing he opened shafts verse verse four in a valley away from where anyone lives they are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing two and four. Do you, do you hear that? Verse 3 is about how there is darkness and deep gloom. Verse 4 is about these shafts, these, these, right, these mines that are dug into the earth. They're located where people don't live. And these individuals are forgotten. Right? Right? Um, They they hang in the air, meaning they're lowered down by rope, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. There's a danger to what is going on, so it is dark, it is desolate, it is lonely, and it is dangerous. Yet man finds a way to mine out that which is valuable. 5 and 6. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire its stones are the place of sapphires and as the dust of gold you see what he's saying he's saying look the earth on top the surface earth the, out of it comes bread and he's probably using bread in the sense that you know um that a lot of asian languages use rice right um because the the main thing that is the staple of your diet in your language usually turns into um a, a way of speaking about food generally right? And we sometimes do that, like, let's go break bread. We don't mean that we're going to go and actually just break bread and eat bread. We mean, let's go eat a meal, right? Um, And so in in other languages, the the primary thing that you eat, that's so bread here is speaking about food generally. The earth, out of it springs food. Vegetation, right? Um, Tomatoes, I like tomatoes, right? Um, Carrots, I like carrots, right? Potatoes, right, right? Wheat for bread. I mean, all of that grows out of the earth. That's what he's saying. Food comes from the earth, but underneath it it takes a little bit more work. And I think what he's implying in verse 5 is that it doesn't take a lot of genius to plant seeds, water it, and then something starts growing. But it takes a lot of ingenuity to dig under the earth, to turn it up as by fire. And and what he's probably referring to is, at least we know historically... They didn't have explosives at this time, so sometimes they would just make a fire against the wall, right, in these mines, and they would heat it as hot as they can, and they'd bring buckets of water, and they'd, just, they'd try to make it get cold quickly, and they would break the stones. And then, verse 6, the stones are the place of sapphires. It has the dust of, that's where the treasure comes. Ingenuity, ingenuity triumphs, right? That's the third point. In seven through eleven. Verse 7, that path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen, the proud beasts have not trodden, and the lion has not passed over it. So speaking of the 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 predator of the skies, whose eye is the keenest on earth, right? The falcon. He's looking. You know those birds like hawks and stuff? There's a bunch like where we live in Simi Valley. Every once in a while they'll circle. And then you know what they do is they see a mouse. A field mouse. You know how small that is? It's like like this big. I don't like them, but they're small, right? And from the sky, they see them swoop down, and they'll grab them, right? And then that becomes their lunch. The point is that the sky hunters, with their keen eyes, have not seen the wealth that is underneath the earth. They don't see that. The proud beast, right? In other words, the, the powerful beast, like the lion, and so, right, uh, the, the parallelism of, of Hebrew poetry, the proud beast is the lion. He's not walked on gold, right, nor has he passed over sapphires. He's not interested in that, nor is that his domain. He doesn't notice it. The, the animals don't care. But man, verse 9, puts his hand, and that puts his hand means that probably almost aggressively to say that, he, man, he puts his fist on that bad boy, right, to the flinty rock. He draws out flinty rocks, right? And he probably pounds at it to get it. He overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes see every precious thing. Animals don't care. But man, human beings see everything. They see the value of those treasures. He'll, he'll dam up streams, verse 11, so that they don't trickle. And the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. There is a seeking. Oh, my. There is a seeking, right? That human ingenuity has provided as far as these treasures. And that seeking is a distinctly human characteristic. Human beings can, and they do. Animals, maybe they could, but they don't care. Even the animals that dig really well, they don't go like, oh, hot dog, we got some gold here, right? Right? They don't trade with humans. They don't care. Gold is just this weird stuff that is yellow. Right? It is only human beings that care about such things. It is only us that put value on things, whose eyes see every precious things. It is, it is the way that we're designed, that we seek out that which is valuable. That's, I think that's how Jesus was leveraging The parable of the kingdoms in Matthew 13 when he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. He covered up and in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. And as we're hearing that story, we're like, dude, that dude is kind of crazy. He's so joyful. He's going to sell everything. He's going to legit buy a field with all that he owns, everything he could liquidate, right? He sells his house, his car, empties out his bank account so that he could buy that field because there's a treasure there, and that treasure is beyond imagination, and that's such a big deal to him. He says, similarly, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. This guy, he's a merchant. He's a jeweler. I think it's jeweler, jewelist. He's he's in search of pearls, fine pearls, not those not so fine pearls. He wants the fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he goes and sells all he has to buy it. Seeking, because something is valuable, that seems to fit the concept of searching for wisdom in Job, and it seems to fit the concept of seeking spiritual wisdom in salvation. In the words of Christ, there's something to this. There's something that we should understand about this. And yes, you are not miners. You don't look like miners. I'm not a miner, right? Miner. <laughs> that's funny. Some of you are miners, right? But O R. But you know, right? But we don't we don't dig for stuff, right? But we get the search for something that's particularly valuable. That that's his entire long-winded illustration that wisdom wisdom cannot be mine so many precious things that human beings will, will risk life and limb for can be mine wisdom cannot be mine secondly wisdom cannot be possessed wisdom cannot be possessed verse 12 through 22 <clears throat> the point is that wisdom cannot be bought it cannot be bartered and there's nothing comparable to it and if, if we begin in verse 12 to 14 we can say that wisdom cannot it cannot be found. Now, this is interesting because it paints a theme of wisdom in a way that is, that is I, I think, probably a little surprising to some of you, right? Verse 12 says, But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Job's point is that you think about all of these, these metallurgical treasures, right, that we dig and we find and we extract from the earth. Human ingenuity, and their seeking the desire for some things, have gotten them to it. But how about wisdom? He says, where are you going to find wisdom? Is there a mind for that? Is there a place you go to gain an understanding? His answer, right? Because the question is somewhat rhetorical. His answer is going to be no. He says, verse 13, man does not know its worth and is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. Job contends in verse 13 that human beings know how to seek something, even if it's dangerous and dark and difficult. He knows, she knows how to seek something that they feel is valuable, sapphires, gold, silver. But what about wisdom? Human beings don't know its worth. And in this moment, Job is saying, there is nothing of greater worth to me right now than to gain the insight to know why does god do the things that he does wisdom right now in job's life is more valuable than hey job drink this elixir and you'll be cured of whatever disease you have he doesn't care about that he'd like to know why right hey job guess what we caught those bandits we can restore some of your fortune and little by little you'll get back up on your feet how's that sound He doesn't care about that. He's saying the value, the worth, is knowing why, knowing who, knowing what and how. It's the wisdom. He's saying man does not know its value, its worth. And you can't find it among the living. He speaks about wisdom in an absolute sense. And he says if you go into the deepest parts of the ocean... And you asked it, if the deep was alive, if it was personified, It would say, dude, wisdom's not here. And if you asked the ocean, the seas, say, hey, have you, you know, caught any wisdom lately? No, it's not here. It's beyond us. Unlike, right, unlike all the precious gems and metals that are in the earth, that human beings can in their ingenuity and their, their, their craftiness, they could, they could mine that out. You can't find it. Wisdom can't be obtained. Secondly, it can't be compared. Verses 15 through 19. It cannot be bought for gold, verse 15 says. Silver cannot be weighed as its price. See, it is incomparable. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Verse 17, Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal. Toss that out. That doesn't even come into the conversation. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. He just piles up all of these things that human beings at that time identified as being some of the most precious things you can possess. And he's saying... Wisdom is so valuable that it's incomparable. Nothing can equal its value. He uses the word gold three, four times, at least in our English, but in the Hebrew, it's, uh, it's three different terms. He uses uh, this idea of pure gold. Right? It cannot be bought for gold in verse 15 and then towards the end. right? It cannot be valued in pure gold. It's the same term, and it means that it is just probably raw, pure, excellent gold. Uh, in verses 16 and 17 he uses two different terms one it says it's this special kind of gold this gold from ophir which again uh, historians aren't even sure what that is like why is that so valuable right but that's a particular kind of gold really good gold like green gold i guess or something you know what i mean like a different color pink gold right it's gold but of some other value um a quality and then there's articles of gold. That, that's what he means in verse 17, right? When gold and glass cannot equal it, he uses another term that suggests that bejeweled gold, gold set in certain ways, like, like you would expect from glass or crystal or jewelry, right? Jewelry of fine gold. That, that, all that stuff is kind of thrown in there as well. And he's saying collect all of it. Collect everything. If we say it today, collect your pension, your retirement plan, your education, the cost of everything, your bank accounts, your your, your failing stocks, right? Like all of that stuff. It put it all in a giant pot and he's saying that is all going to be left behind. That doesn't explain anything. That doesn't connect you to anything of eternal value. Wisdom does. And man doesn't even recognize its worth. Can I say on a side note, the value of wisdom is especially acute when it's needed the most. I mean, it's kind of obvious. I guess anything is more valuable when it's needed the most. But when you think about Job, where his whole world has come crashing down around him, and he just wants to understand, that understanding is more valuable than restored health, restored fortune, than restored anything. And can I say this? Job is not merely looking for an answer. He's looking for understanding, for wisdom, right? When Job says, why, Lord? You notice that God will not show up towards the end of Job. He doesn't show up and say, because I said so. Now, shut up, right? It's not just a simple answer that he wants. He wants the understanding. Because there has to be... um, kind of a design, a purpose, a meaning. All of those things I just said are things that we as human beings seek from the very fabric of our being. So even when dark things happen or bad things happen, we believe there's still an intentional goal, a meaning, a purpose. On a battlefield, that's what generals do. They know many of their men are going to die. That's a tremendous sacrifice. But they believe that even in taking some losses here they might be flanking the enemy here and ultimately they will win the prize they will win the war wisdom is gaining the insight to understand why this bad thing must happen for this good thing to take place have you ever heard the phrase it's friday but sunday's coming no nobody nodded well that's it's a good phrase Preachers used to use that, right, on Good Friday services a lot. I might have to do it this this coming Good Friday next year, right? But it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. What do they mean by that? Because the darkness of the day when Jesus Christ is crucified. Walk in the shoes of the disciples. The hopelessness, the shock and tragedy, not just loss, but like, wait a minute. I thought this was the Christ. Why is the Christ dead? What is happening, right? Can you imagine the darkness of Friday? Well, wisdom sees the darkness of Friday as a means to the brilliance of Resurrection Sunday. Do you see that? see this is what we're talking about when we say understanding and wisdom and we talk about God our father his wisdom is such as God only wise that he does as he pleases only as he pleases but he does it with such wisdom that for us mortals it can't be found we kind of go okay so Lord like okay you're going to explain one day right exactly why I was born too short to do this or too slow to do this right or too dumb to become this right like like you have things that you wish oh i wish i was better this i was more that etc and you expect that you will show up to god one day and in eternity future that he's going to say oh this is the three reasons why and you go "Ah, oh, i got it right probably not such wisdom resides with god and god alone if, if your circumstances were not exactly as God had, had ordained and orchestrated them, would you have come to faith? Question mark, right? George and I talk about this sometimes. We emigrated to the United States when I was like three, George was like six. Like we were little kids. We grew up here, and this is our country, and in this country, learning English, knowing English... Growing up and and living by neighbors who would drive us to church, even though the parents didn't go, they just thought church was good for the character of these wild kids, right? Kind of getting that involvement to church and Christianity, walking away from the Lord, going through all of this stuff, eventually meeting other Christians, and then finding the gospel to be so, so true and so valuable, and so meaningful, how did all these things happen? And if you added up all the circumstances of an entire lifetime that took you from one country to another, from success to poverty, from struggling this to struggling that, from barely getting into this university or that university, being relocated here, and having to make friends that happen to be Christians, on and on and on it goes. When you add in all these small coincidences over an entire lifetime, No one is wise enough to orchestrate this. And yet God does this by the billions every single moment of this world. This is what we mean by God is only wise. And I think this is why, right, scriptures speak about God's wisdom as being so unfathomable, so unreachable, that there's a sense in which, yeah, you could find platinum somewhere in the world you look hard enough, you dig carefully enough, you do what it takes to get there, you won't ever find the full divine answers, the full substance of all of divine wisdom. It cannot be found. So he says it cannot be found in verse 12 to 14. It cannot be compared to all the stuff that you can mine out of the earth in 15 through 19. And then he says the same thing again. It cannot be found, verse 20 to 22, so that we should understand that his point is it cannot be found it's unattainable verse 20 from where then does wisdom come he repeats in in, in a very similar way right with very slight alteration the same question so where does it come from where's the place of understanding he says it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air abaddon and death say we heard a rumor of it with our ears i love that right it's it's like he's saying he's personifying destruction abaddon in fact abaddon becomes then a, a name that is given to the fallen angel in charge of the bottomless pit in revelation 9 right he's the embodiment of destruction and Sheol is the grave the place of the dead he is the embodiment of the grave and those guys you ask them destruction death where can wisdom be found and they're like Man, I, I heard a rumor about it at some point, right? In all of these years. We heard a rumor about it with our ears. Only rumors. Even the supernatural, imagined to be to be personified. They don't know. All they know is that it, it exists. But it's transcendent, it's ungraspable, right? Divine absolute wisdom is only in God. And why is this valuable? Because Job is hinting at the solution to his question why? And the solution is not going to be satisfying. There's not going to be a clear answer. Because Job! I thought you'd be pretty good with this. I, because I want to give you better and more children. No, that's not what God's doing, man. Because I want you to give you better and more treasure. And that, that's shallow and that's not the point. Right? God will do that, but that, that's certainly not the point, nor does Job feel that that's the point. The whole point is that when all is said and done, some things, some mysteries belong to God and God alone. And why he does things the way that he does, he has a divine purpose and wisdom, and human beings have not the capacity, the ingenuity, or the courage to mine all of that out. See, what if this chapter ended here at verse 22? I think it just leaves us with, okay, so God knows we don't know. It's as good as it gets, man. This is about all we got, right? I think it leaves us with a pit of helplessness. It leaves us wondering about meaninglessness and about the absurdity of existence and life and purpose and pursuit. It leaves us thinking, man, vanity of vanities. It is all vanities. But see, this is the point, and we have to get to, right, this last section. Because it's not the end of the story. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. See, that's the point. Wisdom cannot be mined. So many things can, but not wisdom. Wisdom cannot be possessed or purchased. Or exchanged or compared. And here's the the main part, the punchline for us verses 23 to 28. Wisdom is only with God. The singular solution to the wisdom that we desire so much is the Lord. And in particular, as we get to verse 28, the fear of the Lord. But let's look at these, these other steps first. Wisdom is only with God. God fully knows wisdom. Only God fully knows, its wisdom, fully knows wisdom and its place. Verse uh, 23 to 24 says, God understands the way of it. He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. See, he says he understands it. It's another term that could be used to talk about wisdom. He gets where wisdom is. He knows its place. He's thoroughly familiar to where it resides because it is his he says he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the sun in other words God sees and he looks and he knows he knows the, the the essence of everything it's saying that his knowledge is so thorough that he knows everything that is taking place and all that is happening throughout all of creation this is what makes God God He doesn't grow in knowledge. He doesn't grow in understanding. He doesn't grow in wisdom. He doesn't start spinning a world and go and watches and goes, oh, that's interesting. Okay, then I'm going to do this now. He had it all planned from the beginning to the end. Nothing is unknown, unseen to the all-wise God he sees the ends of the earth this means that he knows its parameters its boundaries its beginning and end all that there is there was and will ever be concerning the earth he has knowledge of it his wisdom is already full and it's not static he's not trapped in a moment as we are job is trapped in a moment we in exchange are outside of that moment we know how it's going to end and if we were there, we would say, Job, man, just hang on, okay? I can't tell you everything that's going to happen, but don't just say, just hang on, dude, just hang on. You're going to be all right. Job doesn't know. We don't know. You're going through some stuff, and you don't understand. We are singularly trapped in a moment, static, in our understanding of what is happening. God is not. His knowledge, his wisdom is infinitely vast and encompasses all of time. He sees everything that was, is, and will be. And because of that, in the heavens and the earth, he never loses control. And he never abandons his people. Even if Job can't mine out the fullness of the absolute wisdom of the Holy One, that Holy One is still worthy of Job's trust, of Job's faithfulness, of Job's worship. Of Job's love. Even if you can't figure out why these things are happening at this particular moment in life, I guarantee you there are other moments in your life you're wondering, why is this happening to me? And even if you didn't get the full answer, the divine trillion different channels of ways that things could have gone and how God is orchestrating all the universe all at once and your life in particular, even if you didn't have that full, right, absolute knowledge and insight... You got through it, and on the other side you found that God only wise is worthy, is worthy of trust and of hope and of love and of worship. Wisdom is only with God, and only God fully knows divine wisdom. But wisdom, as God utilizes it, God utilizes it absolutely in ways that are unwieldy to us. Look at what he says. Verse 25 to 27. When he gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and the way of the lightning and thunder, then he saw it and declared it and established it and searched it out. I I love this. So he is using the illustration, right, of God and his utilization of his wisdom so that the way that he creates things in this world, it... It's not as straightforward as you and I would have done, right? You guys playing Minecraft, right, and trying to set up your world. You do this and this. You set things up a certain way because you want certain things to happen. Well, God, in his wisdom, uses things that are so unwieldy and surprising. He gives the wind its weight. Wind doesn't have much weight. But the point is, he tells how hard the wind will blow like a storm and destroy a home or how soft it'll blow, gentle and refreshing to human beings. He apportions the water by measure. In other words, he tells the waters how far they're allowed to go and where they have to stop so that he could flood a region if he desires, or he could water and sprinkle your grass. He made a decree for the rain, how much, where, and when. He made a way for lightning and thunder. He controls every rumble and every lightning, right? Like you guys seen the slow down pictures of lightning? It just kind of goes randomly. Like you can't guess where that lightning bolt is going to go. Right? God does. He has control all of these things and Job intentionally chooses those things that are so unwieldy that we cannot guess at them. Verse 27 says God saw it. Saw what? All of that. Where it should go. What it should do. He declared it. He's the one that's instrumental behind it. He established it. He's created this world in such a way that there are mysteries that we keep searching out and we can't figure it out. And he has. He has searched it all out. He knows its very end. I won't read it, but Proverbs 8 is an excellent proverb to speak of of nature and how God in his wisdom has created all things in this world. We need to get towards the end here. Fearing God is our wisdom. Fearing God is our wisdom. All right? I don't know why I put 25 to 27. We already covered that. God fully utilizes wisdom. It's just verse 28. And look at verse 28. We should look at this one carefully and thoughtfully because this is kind of the punchline of it all. And he said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So, okay, so there's a parallel between fearing the Lord and turning away from evil and wisdom and understanding. Fear of the Lord, right? Fear, fear of God and turning away from evil. Does that sound familiar to you at all? That's exactly what God describes as Job. Blameless and upright, right? Fearing God and turning away from evil. This is exactly Job's character, And Job is saying, when all is said and done, this is God on record. See, I love this because God says to man in verse 28. So this is the first time since the first two chapters of Job that God is on record. He's being quoted. And God says, behold, the fear of the Lord. That's wisdom. Turning away from evil is understanding. Fearing God is wisdom. See, up to this point, wisdom has been used. The term has been used, the Hebrew term, throughout This chapter has been used with a definite article. Here it is used without the definite article, suggesting that it is more general. And I think that's the distinguishing mark because because Job is saying that divine, absolute wisdom is unattainable. You're never going to go. You're never going to have it, right? Not fully. But there is a wisdom, a heavenly wisdom, that we can kind of get a sense of. And And it is based, it is founded in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, The end of the matter, when all is heard, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. See, I find this interesting because in the, in the wisdom literature, Proverbs begins by saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? It's the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes ends with a statement that when all things are considered, fear God, keep His commandments, the fear of the Lord, Right? Um, at the end of Ecclesiastes is the beginning of wisdom. In Job 28, right here smack in the middle of the book, it's that same statement in this statement from the Lord, all right? The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the proper response for created beings like us in the presence of our creator, God. Let me define this for us. Because I think when we think of fear, we immediately think of terror, or we think of being startled. Right? Ah! Right? I'm mean, I'm scared of the Lord. Right? That's not what he's talking about. Can I define it this way for you? Because I think the other side we lean into too too I don't know too too simplistically. Is it just means reverence? It does. It does mean reverence. But let me let me help you with that. It's a holy apprehensiveness. It's a holy apprehensiveness. It's a reverent caution. If we understand the fear of the Lord rightly, right, it it leads to obedience and the shunning of sin because of who God is. In other words... What does wisdom look like? It looks like the fear of God. And what we mean by that is that there is is this this mental acknowledgement of who, who God is. There is this emotional feeling of the greatness and the magnitude of who God is. And so there is this mental... right. Um, and and, and, uh, emotional and spiritual all mixed together apprehension and reverence for who God is the key in that is not defining the feeling the key in that is defining the object it is God that we tend to fear if we know him well, and if we fear him because we know him, then Job is beginning to discover, and maybe this is Job, adding this by inspiration into the book of Job in the middle and not at the end. Because maybe after everything has been said, he recognizes herein lies wisdom for our human beings. You don't need an answer. You need God. You don't need a rescue. You need God. You don't need a new job. You don't need a new career. You don't need a new start in life. You need God. And when your mental mindset, your emotional center is about God, that is when you understand what the fear of the Lord is. It is that worshipful moment. Hopefully you experienced some of that as we prayed and we sang songs to the greatness of our God today. But there's a moment sometimes when you are worshiping when your mind is engaged, when your soul is engaged, when your emotions are engaged, and you think to yourself, "Oh man, how good is our God? How good is his majesty, his power, his wonder, his value, and his grace and his love and his kindness towards me, and I deserve none of it and it's exactly at that precise moment, if you could bottle that." That's what I would say is the definition of the fear of the Lord. It's not scared of being judged. Everyone is scared of being judged. They should be. It's created into their conscience. Unbelievers are scared of being judged. They're not scared until the judge shows up. No, to fear the Lord means that you live with an apprehension Because He is here. Because you know Him. He transforms, and the thought of Him transforms everything that you do, everything that you want to do. What is it that you're after in this life? A good career? A giant family? An RV? I gave up on that dream. (laughs) I don't don't want the RV anymore, right? What is it that you really want, and why do you want it? Why, Why do you just want to relax? Why do you just want money? Why, why do you want ease or security? Why do you need all those things? And it's because it is a seeking that is built into us. What you want more than anything else is the nearness of God so that He can be your good. And that nearness of God, that's what we're defining as the fear of the Lord. It's interesting to me because wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. And I say found, and I'm trying to say found and not... Um, that wisdom begins because beginning sounds chronological. Like you start with fear of the Lord, and then you, then you go on to greater things, right? Like like oh, God is amazing. And then what's the better stuff? I'm going to, right. That's not that's not how we're understanding it. Beginning meaning the foundation. This is this is where any wisdom begins or starts is in understanding who God is in us, in relationship to us. And I think the most interesting thing is that in 1 Corinthians 1.30 and in Colossians 2.3, and I won't read you those because I'm running late again, right? But in those passages, it speaks of Jesus Christ, he being the fullness of God's wisdom. In, In other words, he is the embodiment of this is the why for everything. And I love that. Because he, like where the Old Testament is saying, it is, it is God, you don't need an answer or rescue, you need God, you need to fear the Lord. The New Testament picks that right up and says, yes, that's wisdom, fearing God, and in particular, in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the fullness, the embodiment of God's wisdom and understanding come to life. Because if you fear God, and you want to keep His commandments, or you fear God, and you're trying to shun evil, the only means of doing that is in the perfect wisdom of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we place our faith in Him and recognize our unworthiness and His willingness to exchange His righteousness for our sinfulness, that's when we go, okay, at least that wisdom I get. Right? Friday, but Sunday's coming. We, we understand our Friday now and that our Sunday is coming. And you know, that's exactly what we're going to celebrate in a couple of hours in the celebration of baptism as we hear how God has given wisdom, His wisdom, into the life of many who found only darkness and found that the rescue out of that darkness is the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. I don't want this to be esoteric and kind of get away from me. I just want you to realize this, that all the things that you pursue, everything that you want, everything that you, you want to be better at and you want to be better, like all of that stuff, right? It's supposed to aim us to a seeking of something that's greater than us and is found in the fear of the Lord and this personified in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Seek wisdom. Seek wisdom not simple solutions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the encouragement that it gives us and ask that you would bless it to flourish in our lives so that we might bear fruit because of what is implanted in our souls. May we seek your wisdom and when we seek, seek your Savior, Jesus Christ for us. In Jesus' name.